HBO right now, just trying to find something for next week. I, I know the feeling well. Yeah. Uh, hello, welcome to th- this month's edition of uh, Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. We're back from hiatus. I, I kind of basically really all it was was uh, after I was done being on vacation and then sick, uh, it was Corwin's turn to go on vacation and fortunately not be sick. But we're back stayed healthy again. Yeah, you stayed healthy. I did not stay healthy. You stayed healthy. Um, definitely better about keeping the germs out of you than I was. Um, no, I'm the kind of guy who gets sick, like really sick once, maybe twice a year. Like I just get a cold that just bedridden's me for about three days, four days, and then good to go. I used to hate that shit about people would be like, ah, oh, it's just a cold. It's like when I get a cold, I am immobilized. Yeah. Like, it's not like I'm like stuffy nosed and, you know, a little drowsy can still go to work and go about my day. It's like, no, I, I think about going to the ER and then decide, no, I'm a big boy. I know it's going to end soon. And then uh, I curl up in a ball for a couple of days. Like the rest of the adult world. Yeah. Don't tell me I could just have to work through this shit. Fuck out of here. But eh, whatever. It's a fight yeah. for another day. Anyway, we are still. I, is this the fucking first episode post Oscars? Is, is that how long it's yes. been? Yes, it is. Jesus Christ. Uh, well, all right. So we're back into just picking movies that we want to do. So there's no big grand uh, plan with the, the, the movies for a change. There's no constant updating we have to do about progress. It really is just us getting to talk about movies again. So that's Read nice. It. However, the downside is. Um, as Corey and I were just chit-chatting about before we started recording, we both kind of watched these movies a little while ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're just going to do our best. Uh, that's this episode. This episode is just trying. <laughs> Give it the old college try. Yeah. So to that effect, I actually want to start with Pig because we've cumulati- cumulatively watched it the longest time ago. Mm. I think I'm sitting on a solid month ago for this. And I think you're at what, two, three weeks now. Yeah, just about. Yeah. So combined, we haven't, we haven't seen this movie in a long time. So I, can't I, think say I did fun. mark down a date on my calendar. So I to know the exact date it's been, but yeah, let's jump into it. Yeah. All right. So we're going to start with pig, which was a, 2021 film starring uh sorry directed by michael sarnoski uh also written by michael sarnoski and uh vanessa block the film stars nicholas cage alex wolf and adam arkin uh this film had an estimated budget oh i actually don't have it anywhere so it doesn't exist fuck me but i have a cumulative worldwide gross of about $3.8 million. So I, I can't imagine this movie cost that much. It definitely costs more than $4 million, like for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but since this is largely a streaming film, because I don't know about you, but I watched this on uh, Ulu, um, I, I, I'm sure we're not going to get good solid budget numbers on any of this shit anyway. Uh, yeah, the tagline of this movie is... We I don't Googled get, it. Oh, what'd you Google? Uh, oh, nope. I am 
this is not the same. Uh, this is wrong. This is not the thing. This is the 2021 Congressional Pig Book. <laughs> I, I don't know what this is. Uh, I don't even know what you Google to find that. Uh, pig budget. Pig <laughs> budget. Yeah, no, that was not going to get you the right results, my friend. This is the Citizens Against Government Waste.org website. This is a different podcast that I think I'll just hand off to NPR. Do you remember this? Sorry, this is very random and a complete non sequitur. But do you remember having like classes in middle school, like in the library mm-hmm. taught by librarians about how to Google things? Um. My first gut reaction as you were asking that was, dude, I don't remember a class from middle school, but you just saying that reminded me of that class that I took in middle school. Right. Like every now and then I'll be going to go look something up and I'll randomly have this weird, vivid, but also like vague, foggy memory of like sitting in the back of a set of desks in my middle school library being taught, like you add the plus sign to make it a phrase and you can add quotes around certain things. And like, I don't really remember much of it. I, I have such a memory of this. I remember it distinctly from high school, like my freshman or sophomore year for like the first major, like research paper we had to do. And it's at this point, I use Google enough for both, the random things I think about during the day and the vast majority of my job. But I, I, I pretty much understand the Google search algorithm and and how to find certain results just by using keywords. Like that's 99% of what I do. And then every time it's like, no, I need something uber specific. And I know it's just going to give me whatever gets the most clicks and whatever has the most, you know, search results. So we need to dig deep, like we need to be Neo in the matrix and we need to like completely plug in. Um, And it always brings me back to that class. Do you think that class still exists? It, I mean, the students are definitely teaching the librarians, but yeah, I I imagine. Because like I learned how to type in school because you didn't just have keyboards around, you know? Do you remember the covers they would put yes. over the keyboards? Absolutely, I do. Fuck those things. Yeah, they felt like fucking lead. All right, we're going down a whole rabbit hood of like early 2000s nostalgia that we'll never climb out of. So let's just. All right, pig. The tagline is we don't get a lot of things to really care about. Dot, dot, dot. Um, horrible tagline. Just just With- absolutely no good. Without the ellipses, I could almost agree with it. I would agree with it. We've got a lot of things to care about. Yeah, that's a correct tagline. Huh. Okay. The ellipses. It's the tension that ruins it. Oh, actually, you know, the ellipses was just a smudge on my computer. So it. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, it's actually just I'm my you bad. licking your thumb and just swiping your computer screen. It's like, oh, nope. Didn't Hello. lick my thumb, but that's essentially what happened. Yeah. Nice. I was like, huh, one of those dots looks too close to the other one. Yep, <laughs> that's my fault. Anyway, the movie is about a truffle hunter who lives alone in the Oregon wilderness and who must return to his past in Portland in search of his beloved foraging pig after she is kidnapped. 
Corwin, this was your movie, so why don't you get us started? Um, I had no idea that this was made this year up until about a week before the Oscars when people were saying like, wow, like I just saw people talking about it on Twitter, possibly Reddit, it all blends together about like, man, Pick was actually like a really enjoyable Nicolas Cage movie that, you know, this should have been talked about. This is nice. So gave it a shot. It, I think if I went into it expecting a just a really deep Nicolas Cage movie, like deep into Nicolas Cage, not like deep into narrative or emotions or anything else. I'd have been like, oh, this is like a really good Nicolas Cage movie. Um, I think it's just an okay way to spend like two hours. Like it's not like I'm upset that I watched it. I don't think this is something that was gypped by the Oscars, but there's enough things in there to be like, okay, I enjoyed these parts. This is fine. Just a, a totally average film that based off of the benchmark of Nicolas Cage would actually be a, a positive experience. Yeah, this is a this is a weird movie because it's a crazy movie in which Nicolas Cage is the most normal guy in it. Love that. And it's totally correct. And it's weird to watch because, and I will argue vehemently as we discuss this movie more, that this movie is hot garbage and quite bad. Um, but I think Nicolas Cage did a great job. And it was weird to watch like horrible dialogue and genuinely terrible uh, uh, writing for, for the direction of this story and everyone's motivations and how the characters knew each other. The world that was built within the script was one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. And yet, Nicolas Cage is actually really quite good in it and was the only reason I wasn't like hating the movie while like I was able to be like, all right, okay. He, I'm, he I'm was still a here. genuinely heartfelt character. Yeah. I appreciated the the work and backstory he put into the character and the way he he portrayed it. I thought he was excellent. It feels That's like the positive. <laughs> it, yeah, it feels like you know you watch Nicolas Cage movies from the early nineties. You know you watch like um, was it uh, Moonstruck Con and Air. like Raising Arizona? No, I'm talking even before Con Air, the early nineties, okay. like when he just got started. And you go like, oh, like this is a guy playing a guy. You know what I mean? Like, here's another um, he's not Brad Pitt good looking, but he's like a decent looking dude who plays kind of gritty, real guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it felt like he kept going. All right. How do I make this bigger? And then we get to Con Air and Face Off. And it's like, oh, this man is is just losing it on screen. Like he is whatever the opposite of Shakespearean acting is, it's this, mm -hmm. it is loud. It is violent. It is uh, acting as a sport. <laughs> and it feels like he did that for about 15 years. And now he's kind of like, all right, all right, all right. Let's wind this back down a little bit. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> and, and this is the result of him going like, all right, all right, all right. I can't be yelling Mr. Faceoff guy for the rest of my life. I gotta 
I got to calm myself. That feels like this role. Agreed. But the movie itself is still nuts. The the way I picture it is if Nick Cage is the son, he is the center of the universe. He has this immense gravitational pull. And in comparison, all of the other characters are on these narrative orbits that when you're looking at the sun, you can't even fucking see. They are just nothingness that just happens to be there. And in the scope of things, it's like, we're not here for that. We're here for this big glowing orb of heat. Honestly, and it, it, it makes the movie better. It saves the movie. I'll put it that way. Because every single character that we meet not named Nicolas Cage is such a complete waste of fucking time. And everything that they have to say is completely fucking like their existence doesn't matter. Their contributions really don't matter. Their backstory doesn't matter. And oftentimes it's done poorly. These people's backstories and 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 their like life contributions to Nicolas Cage's backstory. And so the fact that Nicolas Cage's character is essentially like, I don't give a fuck. Actually kind of saves the movie a little bit because it's like, OK, good. I don't give a shit as Josh. And he doesn't give a shit either. So at least we're not spending that much time caring and we can kind of move on. And it, mm-hmm. I think the movie wants it to be like a cold indifference from Nicolas Cage as he's trying to get, you know, get his pig back. But really, it, it honestly almost feels like an audience proxy of, yeah, no, fuck this guy. I don't give a shit. Like, this is stupid and a waste of time. Um, so, all right, let's actually get into the, the plot of the movie because we've been talking about this movie for like 20 minutes. and haven't. Uh, so essentially, uh, Nick Cage, it, the movie starts off with like where he's like a uh, a wilder person, I guess, essentially. He he does everything in like a small cabin. You know, he does all of his own cooking from scratch. He forages for his own food, cooks it. He's got a pig, hunts for truffles, and he sells those truffles to a hot shot driving a sports car city folk guy. Um, who's played. Hereditary. Yeah, the guy from Hereditary, uh, fucking what's his actual name? Alex Wolf, who plays the, the role of Amir. Uh, and uh, his cabin gets robbed and they steal the pig. And then Nicholas Cage. And then this movie essentially becomes John Wick, where right. Nicholas Cage yeah. is like, I got to go save my pig. Like so much of a John Wick rip that I checked to see if anybody involved in the making of this movie came from John Wick. And no one did that I can tell uh, but it it's such a are you a fan of John Wick movies I'm actually going to start there the first one I enjoyed the second one I sat through the third I did not bother watching okay yeah because I hate all those stupid movies I enjoyed the first one I will never watch the second one again I don't care enough to even attempt to waste two hours on the third. Like the third one, the first one, I should say, filled up enough of a niche that I didn't think existed in that space in that time of like 2018, where it's like, this is, this is enjoyable. I like Keanu in this. That dog is fucking adorable. Go kick that guy's teeth in and just guns and loud noises. 
I'm not saying it's a spectacular film, but it's enjoyable for two hours. But yeah. And this feels like they tried to ground John. Because as much as I really do not like the John Wick movies, you can at least write them off as saying like this is like fantasy action. And what Pig tries to do is to say, all right, let's ground that in something kind of. And so you get these kind of weird turns that the movie's taking that I don't think really pay off because it's like, I don't really. So like, all right, so so he gets robbed and it's like, I got to go find the truffle pig and he stops by these people. They say that they sold him to somebody else. And we already get the idea like there's a conspiracy going on here with the stealing of this pig. And it's like, oh, who fucking cares, man? Why do we care this much? So uh, Nicholas Cage's first reaction after hearing that is to go back into Portland, goes to a restaurant where he knew the head chef and has a weirdly nice lunch just to find out if the head chef knew where the pig was. And that's when we learned that Nicholas Cage used to be a fancy head chef and had passed along the restaurant to this guy who was awful in his role. Really, uh, his lines were, uh, it felt like an extra who got lucky. I mean, he was so bad. And, and again, though, but it interests. So, so it, it's like, what does the movie want to be? Does it want to be the story of a man who accomplished so much that he has, left society in search of the the simple life and then gets dragged back into it because it doesn't do that. He's not getting dragged back into society. It seems like it's setting up for, you know, like a, almost like a film noir, like there's so many layers of bad guys, and thugs and all that shit. But then why give us all this backstory, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, so the, the, like, the scene you, after like, that. This, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I really don't have anything productive to say on top of it. Like, there's not much you can even say. Because, because, so, because the next scene really is when he goes into the underground fighting ring. I, I believe I'm getting the order right, mm. or maybe that came right before. I don't really remember. But the underground fighting ring. Okay, I'm also going to ask you this: What was that? Um. Chefs get the shit beat out of them by were they other just chefs? chefs, or were there sh- uh, like was this a the, cooking the, thing the only, or was there just up, also the guys chefs who were getting beat up looked exclusively homeless, and the guys doing the beating looked almost exclusively like chefs, and maybe that was the flip of like, oh, this guy who used to come beat the shit out of homeless people is now here to get the shit beat out of them. Or maybe he just always got the shit beat out of him, and that's why everyone was like, oh, this guy's tough. He could take the hits for a minute. I don't know. I don't even know. But that's what's so weird about it is it's like, yeah, all right. So so homeless guys are getting beat up for money. It seemed as though they were also betting on how long they would last, and there was a time limit. But I don't. Like there were so many facets to what was happening, I 
didn't really get it. And it's like, yeah, like you said, yeah. like he's a, a legend there, I, I guess. But one would assume because he used to work in food service that he was a puncher, not a punchy. And it's like, do those skills really translate? <laughs> you know, like, let me tell you, folks, as someone who has punched and been punched, way easier punching. <laughs> Um, like I, they want to paint him as a tough guy early on, and it's like, okay, this is the weirdest way of doing it. Like, I don't know why you needed to reinvent Fight Club to do this. Also, this almost never comes up again. Very true. Because at that point, I was like, ah, oh, this really is going to be a straight John Wick rip. And then it's not a violent movie after that. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing to say. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Oh, a- anywho. <laughs> anywho. So the movie just kind of keeps going. I'm going to skip past There's so much bullshit stuff. Who fucking cares? Um, it gets revealed at the, I don't know, the, the top of the third act that uh, Amir, a hereditary guy, Alex Wolf, is the son of a big, what would you call his dad? Um, a truffle mafia kingpin. Right. It's like, so his dad's name is Darius. Oh, um, Rucker. Yep. <laughs> Darius Rucker, uh, played by Adam Arkin. I have no idea what Darius is supposed to be. <laughs> or maybe he said it and I just don't remember. I think he was like a food service supply guy who seem to be running the underground world of truffle acquisitions. And his son went out on his own, who is a mirror and got Nicholas cage as a client. And his dad stole the pig because he didn't want his son to succeed. Or didn't want, didn't or resented Nicholas cage for, um, going with his it was something like that, right? Like I, uh. it was the dad just thought his son was a fucking loser, so it was just like, yeah, I'm so done with you. I like don't come near me. You do one thing successful, you find this guy. I'm just gonna take it for myself. You can go back to being nothing. I'm gonna continue being the fucking man in my own eyes. I'm sad inside because my wife is dead. But I've also always been an asshole. And the only happiness I've ever felt my entire life was this one particular instance long ago. And, you know, it's like you get to that point and that's infuriating because no one's motivations. Or not no one's Darius's motivations are so fucking flimsy. And the levels you have to traverse to get to him really is one. It's a mirror. Like a, a, the, the issue that Nick Cage should be having is with 
Amir and being like, I, you fucking know. Because that's the other thing. How big is the world of truffle resellers in the Portland area? You know what I mean? That Amir. This is, this is the ask- largest aspect of Portland's economy. <laughs> Their main export is, is secondhand truffles. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like the odds that Amir via his dad doesn't know where this thing is are nonsense. Like this movie really should have started off with Nicolas Cage straight up um, reservoir dogsing uh, <laughs> Amir in his shed until he told him what was really going on. Because again, how big is the world of truffle reselling in Portland that his dad wouldn't know what's up? And guess what? I'll be honest. Yeah, his dad knew what was up. As a first watch through, because it happened, you know, in you don't have that information prior to Nick Cage learning it. I never even thought of it. It never came up. But if you were to ever go back and rewatch this film, immediately would be like, oh, well, this is like not even attempted to be hidden whatsoever. Yeah. You're completely right. Like, how the fuck wouldn't there be a connection here? The only reason you don't suspect it immediately is because you don't know it exists. Right. And it, and it's not like it's as broad of a of a thing as um, your car gets stolen in a major metropolitan area. Like your car gets stolen in Los Angeles. The odds of that car being found probably pretty fucking small because L.A. is huge and cars are everywhere. We're talking about truffle reselling in Portland. It cannot be that many people. Like, it can't be that many fucking people. That is about as niche of a subject as you can get. Right? That's what I'm saying. So, all right. So that all happens. And there's a weird fucking scene where Darius starts crying and is like, we already killed your pig, bro. And Nicolas Cage is all like, fuck that, you stupid bitch. I, I mean, really, just like, I don't know, like they're haggling over the money. Darius wants to give Nick Cage 25 grand in exchange for the pig. And Nick Cage is like, fucking no, give me my fucking pig. Um, and then Darius is like, we already killed her. And it's like that, uh, that deflates this a lot. Like that's deflates this a, a fucking ton. So and, is the movie over? No, no, no. Then, no, like, but that's what you have to ask yourself. Like, oh, okay, right. we're searching for this pig. It's not here. Oh, it's gone forever. Okay. That concludes this film. Oh, we still have another hour. Got it. Okay, my bad. And what makes it weird is it's like, again, to, to, to kind of go to John Wick, like the movie starts with the dog is dead. You know what I mean? Like everything else from there on out is revenge. And in this movie, it's revenge because the pig gets stolen, but it's also the mystery of where's the pig. Yeah, right. It, it, and then it just the movie takes the air out of that part entirely. And then you get to the the, the conversation that uh, Nick Cage has with Amir by the car, where he's like, uh, Amir was like, why why'd you need the pig or some shit like that? And Nick Cage was like, I didn't even need the pig to find the truffles. I used trees to find the truffles. I just really like that pig. And then it's like, why did they do any of what they're doing? 
Like, if this movie is going to be about companionship, why do we need that turn? Like, having it be that reveal isn't interesting. It's honestly frustrating because I saw a bum fight and I saw a, a pretty hectic and violent, like a pig abduction scene in the beginning. And you're setting the tone for this being, again, kind of like a Maltese Falcon, uh, 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 the big sleep kind of like who done it where is it kind of deal and instead it's like no uh we know who did it not a lot of people involved um you didn't have to do most of the things you did uh, and also you weren't doing it for the reasons you said you were why because you wanted to have the reveal that it was an emotional connection with the pig and not just a financial one when that could have just been the focus of the the movie the whole time like you didn't have to operate under the guise of of the business of using your 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 truffle cuz you know nick nick cage keeps saying yeah it's a really good truffle hunting pig not not it's not easy training the pigs to find the truffle like all that type of shit it's like why lie why why lie to the viewers like that yeah, like the the thing missing from John Wick wasn't sleight of hand in how they tell the story. That is far from what it needed. It's right. nice knowing where you're headed. And while the story is new and fresh, you still know what to expect out of it. It's not a deep, you know, very grounded story where these twists and turns are what break your heart it's like that it's nick cage living in the woods like it's we're not getting that but i mean five years ago if you pitched me the idea of combining john wick with taken except it's going to be this emotionally attached you know character piece starring nick cage and then ask me to put odds on which aspect of that would be the most successful. The odds on Nick Cage winning would be like picking the Jacksonville Jaguars to win the Super Bowl. So yet somehow that's the only thing that works. Like, here's a crazy sentence. Like a thought that just popped into my head that I'm still wrapping my own head around. Uh, Every thought I've ever Nick, had. Nick Cage's performance in this movie I think I would argue is more muted than Keanu Reeves performance in John Wick. Absolutely. Without question. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> and both of them are the stereotypes for the most and least muted actors in Hollywood. Yeah. Damn, that's a, that's actually very strange and I'm not sure how I feel about it, but yeah. Uh, you're like you're right though. Like if you were to just describe the plot of this movie to me, I would assume it would go along with Nick Cage screaming his lines at everyone who went like passed by him on the street. Um, and instead, he is by far the best part of this movie. Basically, if John Wick turned to meth instead of whatever he turns to to ground himself. Right. If it was like between every gunshot, he like did a bump. And and came up like, oh five Nick Cage like ah like I'd be like ah yeah that's what that's what I'm that's what I'm expecting. Instead, it no. would be 
it would be great if this was actually a direct sequel to um, the current movie he has coming out with Pedro Pascal. I'm actually very excited for that uh, unbearable weight of massive talent. I think that's going to be such an interesting movie. I imagine that's going to be very fun. The thing that has me worried is the fact that it is being very well advertised. Big studios being involved with this and throwing advertising money behind it is what has me concerned. I guess we'll find out, but I mean, it's an interesting idea for a movie and I I enjoy Pedro Pascal. So I, I have I'm getting my hopes up a little bit. A wee bit. I kind of am too. Ooh. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I guess as we're wrapping up here, um, I don't know. Do you have any other points about the plot before we do? I guess final ratings and reviews on this. This was uh, your movie, so you are of course free to start. Would this? I was gonna. My initial question was gonna be, where would this rank in your, you know, top five? Nick Cage movies, if it even makes it, which immediately made me think this should not be the question. It should be, is this in your top five Nick Cage roles? Oh, not even close. People got to remember Nick Cage, Oscar winning actor um, and has been in some very good movies. I think if I had to pick a top five Nick Cage role, it would probably I loved him in Adaptation. I loved him in adaptation. I thought he was so fucking good in adaptation. I just added that to my watch list. It's so good. And I love him in it so much. He is gen- like, I, uh, really great. Leaving Las Vegas, he won his Oscar for it. So that's got to be up there too. Probably the two movies I mentioned before, Moonstruck and Raising Arizona. Those are both great. And he is also great in both of them. And then after that, you got to throw in a crazy one. And for that, I would put in Face Off. <laughs> Don't forget, in The Rock, he fucked the prom queen. I I know what he does. <laughs> um, but, I mean, him as Castro Troy. The movie start That movie starts with Nick Cage in the middle of Griffith Park in the middle of the day shooting a kid to death with a sniper <laughs> rifle. <laughs> he goes to sea prison. Uh, National Treasure is still one of my all-time guilty pleasure movies. It's also so funny because that movie came out when you and I were like starting to learn who actors were. And mm-hmm. Nick Cage plays such a normal guy slash leading man that I assumed for a few years that he was like, I don't know. Normal A-list celebrity. Yeah. Let, I, I, I hate saying Brad Pitt a bunch because I said him already. But like, I just I assumed he was essentially like a Brad Pitt, but, you know, not as ridiculously handsome. Like. Oh, he's yeah. Everyone knows Nick Cage, renowned, great A-list actor, leading man, Nick Cage. And it's like, no, no, he's a lunatic. I mean, the three films I think of from my childhood, knowing who Nick Cage was, were The Rock, uh, National Treasure and Con Air, all of which are, by his standards, normal fucking dudes. I also think of Ghost Rider when I think of him. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Man, which that movie, I kind of rewatched that movie because I bet it's 10,000 times more insane than I remember it. Wow, that was the same year as National Treasure uh, 2, 
Damn. What's the movie where he wears the headset of bees, like the the cage full of bees? Oh, that's the remake of The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. Yep. All time gif. Oh man, what a movie! All right, but any, as, any other the thoughts on on this one for you? I, I need a star rating out of you as well for this. Um, I'll give it a two. Two points for for him. No points for the rest of the film. Yeah, I I think I'm right there with you. I think this is a this is a two as well. Because uh, it's not fun. At no point is the movie fun. It starts off really strong. Like I to it, it like if you do sit down and watch this, the first twenty minutes or so are genuinely captivating, and then it gets into the plot of the movie. And that's it's just not good from there on out. It it has none of the action that the film promises in the beginning, and it loses so much of the intrigue that the movie promises in the beginning. The acting performances outside of Nick Cage are really quite bad. And I'd say probably overacted by everyone outside of him. And everyone everyone's motivations are shitty where the movie actually goes is shitty. The payoff isn't satisfying, nor is it emotionally resonant. It, it, it starts off with so much promise and then just absolutely does not deliver. So yeah, I'm, I am with you. This here film is a two. So, all right, let's hop on over to 1980s Germany. And let's talk about Wings of Desire, uh, which was directed by Wim Wenders, which I'm sure is not how you pronounce that. But boy, is it fun to say Uh, the screenplay was by written by Wim Wenders, uh, Peter Hondke and Richard Reitinger. The film stars Bruno Ganz, Solveig da Martin and Otto Sander, as well as a pretty large role from Peter Falk, uh, essentially as himself, which is delightful. I love Peter Falk. This is our second Peter Falk movie, if we, if you can believe it. Um, the film had an estimated budget of $5 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of, I'm seeing, 3 to $3.4 million. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure actually how much that includes. It looks like it might just be the U.S. Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, the film uh, has a, the tagline, there are angels on the streets of Berlin. Okay. Yeah. Very that is Yeah, that is true for this movie. Yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for a single BAFTA award, which was for best film not in the English language. Uh, that was a nominee from West Germany and France for Wim Wenders and Anatole Dauman. Uh, The film is about an angel who tires of his purely ethereal life of merely overseeing the human activity of Berlin's residents and longs for the tangible joys of physical existence when he falls in love with a mortal. This was my movie, so I will get us started. I loved this. Uh, This is very much so a product of a man who grew up loving Andrei Tarkovsky, and that is a sentiment you will either completely understand immediately or question. But um, 
it has such tastes of like Tarkovsky mixed with uh, Akira Kurosawa. And that hits me so directly. I love that. And I think that the movie's idea is so interesting. And while it's presented very quietly, in some aspects, quite literally, I, I, geez, there's not a lot of dialogue in this movie, especially in the beginning. And then also using black and white makes it feel additionally more muted, uh, which eventually changes as we get glimpses into, or as we get to the end of the film, when our angel buddy becomes a, a real boy. Um, you know, it is, it is very much so a product of a certain era of filmmaking and heavily reflective of the time that came before it. And I enjoy when movies used to do this, which was have a kind of wacky idea or a slightly more difficult to grasp, like a high minded idea and try to figure that out on the screen. And it feels as though that's something that we don't do a lot of in, in the, the filmmaking world these days it, um, for whether it's budget reasons or uh, fucking, I doubt it's people not wanting to do it. I'm sure that usually this shit usually ties back to money somehow, but regardless, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot more of this style of filmmaking from, you know, the, the nineties and, and prior than there really is today. And there's something about it that I, I just love, even down to the bad oh, look, he's sitting on a statue. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, that looks super real. Um, even that has like a special place in my heart. Uh, we'll talk about, I'm sure, the movie more in its plot and its goings as we get into it. But uh, I have seen this one time before this. No recollection of it. Forgot how not talky it was um, and thoroughly enjoyed it on a second viewing Corwin Heller. Why don't you tell me about it? Um, I can't really talk on the stylistic, you know, historical aspect of this film. Cause boy, I just don't watch those kind of movies. Um, You're not a Tarkovsky you, guy. Uh, no, I don't think I would be able to pull them out of raw memory. And I'd, genuinely struggle to pull it off of a list um but i know you watch them every day in the shack at uh, health quest so um i will defer to your judgment my only question is this canological in the colombo universe absolutely i need you to confirm uh i have peter falk's ghost with me as we speak Mm -hmm. And he is telling me that, in fact, this was meant to be an episode of Columbo, but they didn't think American audiences would get it. I trust his ghost, his spirit, now that he has his wings again. Again? Um, I genuinely would have given the first hour hour and 20 minutes like a two and the final you know 45 minutes to an hour like a four and a half and i know the first half of the film is 
Uh, what's the fucking term for it? Um, it's given its meaning and it's it's kind of it's vindicated. Yeah, it, it's given its vindication at the end of the film, towards the end of the film, once we reach you know the, the climax of the, the story. But fuck, it's just such a slog to get through, at least for me. I was just bored, senseless. Just I could not find what we were working towards. Like, I am listening to fucking 35 people just go through their daily lives. What are you trying to tell us? What are you trying to say? What's going on? Like, what are we working towards? Like, if this is the film, okay, it's not for me. I could understand, you know, the the thought behind it. Okay, it's 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 interesting in its premise, but just isn't for me. But it really does pull together beautifully. And the fact that it's Columbo just is a, a nice cherry on top. But I, I really do love how it all kind of pulled together at the end. And, and I love the premise. Um, Peter Falk is so warm in this movie, isn't he? I want like, like, to give so. that guy a hug. Like, hey, man, I don't care if I only ever see you once every 10 years. But like, can you be a long lost uncle? You come by, you give me some sagely advice. Just go about your life. Yeah. I'd love that. Like seeing him just walk around Berlin and having just a darling time honestly could have been the whole movie for me. <laughs> he was so watching him just be happy was such a thrill. But yeah, and honestly, I, I think that the first I was because I was having this conversation with Kel after we watched the movie and it's a little bit like. Th- I used to have. A lot more trust and patience with movies because of movies like this, where it's like, all right, you are clearly trying to achieve something. I have to figure out what it is instead of, wow, this pacing just blows because we don't get movies like this much anymore. And so when a movie feels as slow as this does in the beginning, oftentimes it is a technical failure rather than an intention for a later payoff. You know what I mean? And with this yep. movie, because it, it, you know, like ranks so many bells in, in, in my old movie watching brain, I can recognize that this is attempting to achieve something using this pacing rather than, again, it just not working. And that's what I love about these types of movies, because you watch so many scenes because it, it took me like 30 minutes before I was like, wait, when does this movie start? <laughs> because I was enjoying seeing kind of just like random vignettes of day to day life of people in Berlin, because I thought that the individual scenes were very well done. And it's almost like a little bit of a time capsule seeing stuff that was like 40 years ago now and and it's doing what it's Especially supposed 40 to be. years ago in post-war berlin yeah with the wall still up and everything which by the way that wall was fake um because oh. they were you were not allowed to film the berlin wall i love that little yeah. snippet um and yeah so that and also the, what that first part of the movie is trying to do is there is a beauty to the mundanity that will eventually, you know, 
be one of the the reasons that our main guy, uh, Bruno Gans, our, our main angel, wants to join the regular folks because there's and it gets you know a little bit explained more by Peter Falk in the movie later on, where it's like these small things, the feeling of like a warm cup of coffee in your hand or you know, the, the feeling of like smoking a cigarette or whatever, like they're small day-to-day things that are not very glamorous, but those are the things that have the most imp- like those mean so much. Those are the beauty of getting to be human. And again, there's a patience I'll have with the movie that's trying to show me something rather than just um, exposition it immediately as long as I can tell there is a reason it's trying to show me something which I, I, I think this movie does uh, really well um, yeah I mean I hate that it is something that you don't appreciate until after the payoff like the second time I watch this, I will enjoy, be able to get through it and enjoy it so significantly more than I did the first time. But like you said, like it's the apprehension of like coming from what you know we've been watching for the past few months and you know everything that comes out now. It's like I really just don't know if I trust you to make this two-hour, seven-minute experience worth it, and you're not giving me any evidence. And granted, it's a film that you're picking for us to discuss that's 50 years old, 45 years old. I should trust that it stood the test of time, but I just didn't get past that. Uh, and that's a big barrier for us to, to breach, especially with, you know, like Pig was a quiet movie to start in the beginning. And even that only lasted probably 15 minutes and then gets broken up pretty um pretty like immediately and abruptly by the pig abduction scene, which is, you know, very frantic. And this movie doesn't have like that type of scene. Um, I think a lot of it too is just, it is standing the test of time in 45 years. No one is going to be picking pig to watch for their podcast. Nobody's going to care. It's going to be forgotten. It's going to be just another one of the 50 films in, Nicholas Cage's filmography that nobody remembers. I'm sure there were plenty of films in 1987 that fucking sucked and had oh, yeah. terrible pacing. How much did you love how aggressively 80s the two angels hair was? I must have thought about it at least a dozen times. No, dude, nonstop. <laughs> Just like when they were sitting in the convertible, I noticed the, I guess, the blonde guy's ponytail. And for the next 45 minutes, it was, okay, does the other guy also have a ponytail or is it slicked back and chopped off? Like, I, every time I saw him, I was like trying to peek around his neck to see what he had going on back there. And when it finally paid off, it was like, yes, this was made in 1987. And it's like, oh, yes, yeah. It was. Oh, yeah. Super duper 90s. Um, it's, it's I, I had the thought of, boy, these guys live for literally all of eternity and they get that 80s ponytail. Nice. This guy <laughs> comes back to life times. and keeps the ponytail. Yeah. 
can't let that shit go. So the the film kind of goes along at, with uh, with our, our our two angel buddies uh, observing the people of Berlin and their job, I guess, is to kind of watch and they are able to offer a sense of hope when it is needed. So like there's a, there's a scene with a guy on a subway who's like, um, I forget what his, his whole thing was, but his inner monologue is something like, uh, I don't know. My, my, my job sucks. My, my wife hates me. Like I'm a failure. I'm a bad guy. I'm a bad dad. Like it's like all those types of thoughts. While while Bruno Gans is like right next to him, unbeknownst to him. And then Bruno Gans just kind of like puts a hand on the shoulder and the guy goes, no, like my wife isn't really that mad at me. I can make it up to her. I'm not that bad at my job. Like I know what to do to make that better. You know, like, and, and that I guess really is the, the idea of these angels is that they do not, they're not omnipresent and they're not able to bend reality, but they are able to instill peace and, and good vibes into the people that they interact with on a, on an as needed basis, I guess. Right. I'd say that's, Probably you think it's solely one? good vibes, or do you think they're just nice guys who want to instill good vibes? Like, do you think they could really fuck with somebody's day if they see him being a dick just on the street? That's a great one. I have no idea because they can't physically interact. Because uh, there's the suicide scene where the but- other angel tries to grab him and you know can't. Uh, so but the real people can still feel a physical sensation and kids can see them. There's that too. So maybe they could just really fuck with kids. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. So time, so time is, a, is of no meaning to them. Right. And they do have an, a, a physical visible effect on children. And yet they didn't go back in time to stop baby Hitler. That should show you their real motives. And, and, and how about that Catholic church? I mean, my God, do we even need to talk about it? Uh, anyway. Yeah. So I actually, you know what? Just because while I mentioned it, that suicide scene was really interesting because. I thought it was it, fucking out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's so interesting because when I think of a movie centered around angels, the joys of life and like the yearning for that, I don't think of like failure in this way, especially on this scale, you know? And it's, I think in one part, interesting to show such a, large scale failing on the angels part but it also feels a little bit like the filmmakers are are going bad shit still happens so obviously they can't constantly be successful so we need to show that too you know what i mean 
especially in po- like you said, especially in post-war mm-hmm. Germany. Right. That the cultural aspect I didn't think about. I like that a lot. So like when when you saw that scene, I don't know, like like how how do you how how do you digest it? Um okay, this guy's, you know, all right, he's got a lady going through a tough time. He's hanging out on the roof of this building. Wonder what he's doing up here. My first thought was, oh, he must be one of those those Europeans into parkour. I bet that was popular in 1987. And then he just like goes and he walks up to the ledge. Okay, normal. And then he hops up and then it cuts to the people behind the fence screaming out to him. And immediately it was, oh my fucking God, they're going to do it. And then they do it. And then it was, oh, oh, this isn't just people in post-war Berlin, Germany going about their daily vibes. This is, this is, now we are traveling down into a deeper depth. Like this is, this is the second layer. This is very intense. And I think in the context of where this film starts and where they're trying to take it, where it's a very slow um, you know, grade of incline or decline into the depths of the story. So I think that this was, if this wasn't in the film, I don't know if I would have been able to even get through another, you know, 20 minutes of just what is happening in these people's lives that we need to care about. Because this definitely drags you in, in the sense that the circus worker and the random Columbo actor just didn't do it first. And, you know, even beyond that, there is also not beyond in addition to that, there's also the idea that I think comes up a lot when you have um, like a theological discussion that is free will. Right. And what this also shows is that, you know, we saw one of the angels be successful in kind of talking a guy down, so to speak, on the subway. But we don't want to give the impression that if Bruno Gans successfully becomes a regular person, that he doesn't get to that he that he doesn't lack autonomy. And you even see later on in the film when they are trying to gently judge the intentions and the actions of a character that they can't just will it into existence because they're talking over their shoulder. They're thinking over their shoulder. It's not like they can just have that freedom of choice and and control. Right. And I think that by incorporating the suicide scene, it also informs on that, which is, you know, to say that the angels can influence to a degree, but there are still people who still have their own feelings and make their own choices and live their own lives because that's part of the point of living and ironically being told through death. But still, you know, like without that, the movie might have kind of a, a again, a, a lack of autonomy that maybe cheapens Bruno Ganz's 
um, transition into normal human dumb, I guess. Normal humanity. Uh, no, human dumb is correct. That's the medical term. It's, it's the it's the medical term. It's the it's the 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 Latin yeah. the Latin term for it. <laughs> so, anywho, we, we we kind of move around in in that sphere, seeing stuff, people living lives, and so on and so forth for a while. We we get introduced to Peter Falk, who's in West Berlin to make uh, a, a World War II movie, um, and we also get introduced to a uh, as corwin said a a a circus worker she's a um what do you call that shit uh fucking, artist i guess this is there's like a fancy word for what i'm trying to think of uh, a cirque du soleil acrobat acrobat that's uh, yeah, that's my fancy fucking word for it yeah there we go acrobat's what i was trying to think of uh but yeah trapeze acrobat stuff um and that's also in one of her scenes, we get our first taste of color. So we know that that's being teased a little bit as um, Bruno Gans witnessing that performance for uh, a, a, a quick shot. We see part of her performance in color. And uh, you, I guess that's um, him catching a glimpse into what it must be like to be human. I, I, I guess is probably a reading of that. And that all, uh, I guess, kind of culminates as Bruno Gans eventually meets Peter Falk and, and gets that monologue really that I had mentioned earlier where, where Peter Falk is like, I feel you there and I know what's going on. And let me tell you, you should do it. I used to be an angel too. Um, well, he doesn't say it then, but yeah, essentially. Uh, I guess I'm not sure. We, we covered a lot of ground. I so I guess I'm just for that twist. Yeah, I guess guys. I guess I'll just keep moving. So we keep. Let's, so the end of the, the movie, essentially the the final act, really. Uh, Bruno Gaines becomes becomes human. The movie becomes in color. He wakes up uh, on just on one side of the 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 Berlin Wall, like right next to it, with armor on him randomly. Has to sneak past some guards because he's definitely in an area where he shouldn't be, and um, manages to to get some money from a guy who was very, very kind to him when he looked like an absolute crazy person. Um, There's no way that would happen in the U.S. in 2022. Fuck no. Uh, He hits his head and he bleeds and he's super excited about that. He um, he then and he also he he goes off to try to find Peter Falk and and him and and Peter Falk connect over over this. and, And that's that's when you get. Uh, Peter Falk being like, did you, did you hawk the armor? Then Bruno Gans was like, how the fuck do you know about the goddamn armor? And Peter Falk was like, I was an angel too. I bet you got robbed. Here's some money. Um, and what was, again, just such a heartwarming scene from Peter Falk, who's so fucking good in this. Which also, and, they never explain, why do you just get a suit of armor? I guess because, like, I've seen paintings of... Uh, Angels in like a tunic of armor. So may- maybe there's there's some religious thing that you and I just don't fucking know about that makes that make sense. But even then, like, who's giving them armor? Does God just have like a handful of them? Like, I keep like Q-tips in my glove compartment, and it's like, oh, yeah, here's some armor. 
Toss it down. Uh, you're losing your wings. All right. There's some armor. Clean yourself up. What? It's not important. We can move on. It just bothered me. No, it it is weird, especially because you look at it and it's like, all right, maybe that is some physical representation of their past life, so to speak, of angeldom. But the first thing that he does is sell it. So it's like, ah, okay. Maybe it's there to be used for barter because Peter Falk did the same thing. And I'm sure God doesn't have a mint that he's just printing out Deutschmarks. But, dude, no fucking clue. Maybe it's just part of, you know, heaven law. Just there's some inner party politics where they can't directly pay them, you know, a stipend for losing their wings, but they can provide benefits that can be exchanged. Again, though, if you told me that this that that armor thing was based on a concept seen in an Italian Renaissance painting from like 1502, I'd be like, oh, okay, sure. I would never know that. Okay, neat. Again, you know, did not pay attention to church. Uh, Same. But anyway, so interesting enough, it feels like that's where the movie would end. And then it does not. Then it, it, it kind of keeps going for a little while with uh, Bruno Gans going to a club to see a, a, a band that the woman, the, the acrobat had gone to go see and uh, trying to meet up with her there. Also, he also tried to go to her circus, try to meet up with her there as he he's searching to. um find love in some type of way and seeing him at what I later found out was an actual real band. <laughs> Nick cave and the bad seeds was a real band. Um, that was interesting. Cause it, 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 you know, it's like a combination of you know, here's a guy experiencing music for the first time as a human being and, and, that little small sense of community that is an audience. And at the same time, it's like, that's not why I'm here though. You know, I, I, I'm looking for something. Mm -hmm. And eventually, um, I guess just to wrap it up, he does end up meeting uh, with the the acrobat, uh, Marion, Marion. And, uh, Shit, how does the movie actually end? Uh, they sit and they talk, and I genuinely am confused about what the conversation concludes as. I don't remember. Yeah, I think I'm on, I'm not a month ago here, and I don't remember the final conversation. I'm not a hundred percent sure it would drastically change my interpretation of the film or maybe not the interpretation, but the, the impact of the film. Um, so I won't sweat over it. It really turned around on me. I don't know the last time I saw a film that was this two faced in enjoyment and perception where I genuinely disliked one hour of a two hour film and utterly loved the second. Um, but here we are. Okay, so sorry, I was just looking for how it goes. Uh, it eventually ends 
they um they have a, a a conversation about loneliness and love they kiss um damiel i guess it's the other angel um yeah sees mariana she practices her routine on the rope Cassiel sits on a cloud of black and white and the stars behind him. Uh, Damiel talks about the oneness of him and Marion. He says, who was who? It was true then. It is true now. I was in her and she was around me. Who can claim this? I am together. I learned astonishment. She took me home and I found home. It has happened one time and therefore forever. First, the amazement of the two of us, man and woman, brought me to being. I know now what no angel knows. Um, and then Cassiel sits atop the statue. He hears the thoughts of the old man once more. Men, women, children will search for him. Their storyteller, he thinks to himself, because they need him. They need a storyteller. Uh, yeah, so really the ending is is to say, I, I guess, that Bruno Gans has gotten to experience true humanity from that night with, with Marion. And because of his advanced knowledge of the lack of Life how time is not linear. Well, and I think specifically it, it references there, like how time is not linear and how the, uh, in, again, in, in the reality of angels and how maybe our labeling of things is, is not necessarily as black and white or, or binary as it would appear to us. He knows that because they, he felt love in one moment because time is not linear. He has always felt that love or that love will always exist because it is um, happening concurrently with the rest of time in some respects. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the knowledge that he has gained likewise now exists within him forever as he has managed to attain that, mm. which is, you know, damn, one hell of a way to wrap up your movie. And essentially, if you took all of the depths that this, you know, the last 15 minutes of this film have boil it down for the 35 years since this came out. You just get YOLO. You only live long, only live once. YOLO. I'm trying to refute it, but I can't. <laughs> I am what some might call a genius. Yeah. And what um, others might call an idiot. And you're right. The, the payoff for that ending uh, it takes a while to get there. And I think that once you kind of hit the last, almost like the epilogue, I guess, of the movie, that, that is the, the final 15 minutes, you know, the, the, I think, I guess like the post Peter Falk final scene. Um, it does feel like you've been watching the movie for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but man, it really, I think it really does land at the end wholeheartedly agree I'd, I'd give it a four out of five uh, I can't completely absolve it from the first hour but it's really close to 4.5 right on I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna give this one a four and a half for for me uh I thought this was great I think the performances in it are lovely everyone I think this is such a well cast movie too because everyone is charming and it's a movie that really needs 
everyone to be charming because it is trying to paint this picture of life is beautiful despite its shortcomings and some uncomfortability and some pain. You know, we see an old man who struggles with moving around. Uh, we see uh, a young man die. We see Marion having to grapple with her um, her livelihood being interrupted because the, the circus is failing. We, we see blemishes within the human existence, but they're all countered by these actors really selling the idea that I am still good. Life is still generally good, or at least there's something to be had from it. And needing to radiate a certain amount of warmth that you are, are invested in some type of way in them. Like you want to be along for their ride, especially with a lack of dialogue and action to convince you to stay. Because man, everyone, everyone in this movie is fucking charming. Very much agreed. So, all right. Um, yeah, that I guess is Wings of Desire. So I guess Corwin, let's make next week's next week's picks. <laughs> uh, what do you what do you got? I genuinely was just scrolling through Netflix and HBO and all of the streaming before this and really felt like I wanted to to land on a heavy hitter for next week. So I'm going saving private Ryan. Shaving Ryan's privates. Shaving Ryan's privates. Correct. All right. Okay. I think I think I've heard of that one before. Possibly. It's it's been on some, you know, popular indie lists for a while now. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, I'm going to go with an under the radar classic. A Sidney Pollock film, a Jane Fonda film, an Oscar winning film um, that really I I can't believe isn't more talked about called they shoot horses, don't they? Uh, for glue. That is from 1969. Uh, they shoot horses, don't they? So it is that movie, because I'm not saying that long-ass title again. Uh, and Saving Private Ryan for next week. Check them check out. Um, or don't. Don't give a shit. In the meantime... If you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicing Pod. If you would like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. And if you'd like to follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next week, y'all have a good one. Bye.